Welcome to the conversation where we take everyday issues pertaining to the society and break them down for you to understand. We are trying to understand the link between consumer psychology and the fast fashion industry. That is why we buy from fast fashion brands, despite knowing its alarming environmental implications. Like 57% of all discarded clothing ends up in landfill, and the carbon footprint of one new shirt is greater than driving a car for 35 miles. There are also social hazards in countries such as India, China, and Bangladesh, where the workforce is already very cheap and exploiting the labor under bad working conditions and low wages to the extent of causing deaths and mass protests. To understand consumer behavior in detail, today we have Sanchayan Banerjee on board with us, who has a PhD focusing on behavioral and experimental economics designed to induce pro-environmental attitudes amongst economic agents. Sanchen also has completed his MPhil and MSc in Environmental Economics from the LSC with a distinction and Bachelors of Economics from Jadavpur University, India. He's an Associate Fellow of the Higher Education Academy in the UK and has worked with the LSE Middle East Centre and OECD Trust Lab in understanding human preferences. Presently, Sanchen is working to extend the theory of nudge to incorporate an element of reflection in it with an idea of achieving persistent behavior changes that are ethically aligned with an individual's conscious choice. Over to you, Hethwe. Traditionally, the fashion industry used their capability to forecast consumer demand and future fashion trends long before the actual time of consumption. Around the 1980s, the retailers changed from product-driven to bio-driven distribution channels. The rise of fast fashion gained another surge in 2005 when the World Trade Organization eliminated the quota system of outsourcing abroad. By making use of cheap labor and materials all over the world, especially in China and India, fashion became a huge globalized business. Economics treats consumers as rational, but people also have feelings. We want to understand the effective dimension of fast fashion purchase related to sustainability. We're all feeling the effects of the climate emergency, but it's not affecting all of us equally. A study states that although consumers increasingly say that they care about unethical behavior and value sustainability, this attitude does not always translate to behavior, particularly in regard to the fashion items. Even with the increase in awareness about the social and environmental impact of fast fashion, consumers, after being aware of the negative opportunity cost, are still caught up in purchasing the fast fashion. What are the possible reasons for this, sir? Thank you so much, guys. Uh, first of all, Sanika and Hatebi for introducing me. Um, hope you're doing well. And uh, thanks to all your audience who will be listening to this later on. Um, the point that you're raising, Hatebi, is uh, pretty common, not just in the psychology of fast fashion, but in the psychology of any sort of consumerism that we see around ourselves. Um, now, one of the famous sort of tenets in the literature or the, the particularly the behavioral literature is that there's always an intention behavior gap. Um, it's nothing to say that we are bad human beings uh, or we are irrational. We all want to do good, but when it comes to actually acting on what we want to do, it becomes really hard. Um, and this just is just because it takes a lot of effort to realize our intentions. Um, so that kind of speaks to your first question about why is it that we're not seeing the change? I think it's a more general facet of any of these uh, problems relating to the collective action of climate change, that we all human beings, we want to do something good. Um, however, some of us are not that motivated enough to realize those actions into final behavior. Um, and therefore we see this gap. And this is what is exploited, particularly by the industry. 
this gap that we will not be able to sort of realize our intentions into behavior is a big place for a lot of these fast growing industries to sort of exploit our biases and induce us in buying a lot of things that we buy. I completely agree with you for that similar consumerism patterns are observed in other industries as well. But particularly in the fast fashion industry in the past decade, the rise has been massive with brands like Zara and H&M compare them to slow fashion industries, which produce a limited number of collections every year. Zara produces up to 52 collections per year. That's like one collection per week. And calculating them in terms of designs, that's up to 10,000 designs in a year. So with this massive rise and how quickly they hop onto trends, uh, whatever's like going on right now, they'll plan it. And within five to six weeks, they'll have it on shelf in stores. So how quickly they are adapting, how quickly they are changing to it, to what extent does it actually influence us? Yeah, that's definitely a way of targeting audience. Um, but before we go into what the firms are doing, I think it's more important to understand what has led to a rise of these fast um, industries, right? And uh, as you guys rightly pointed out, uh, we've gone through a phase sort of in the 80s and the 90s when countries have become even more globalized and there's been a, an entry of a lot of liberalized companies which kind of now have hubs all over the world. Um, so the essence of all of it and the crux of all of it is essentially trade. There's a benefit that is a comparative advantage. Um, going back to all your theories of Ricardo and everything there, um, it's a trade benefit. People find it easy and therefore we these industries are doing nothing but rational in exploiting all these benefits and the low-hanging fruits. The place where it comes to why consumers want it is from an increase in income and purchasing power. Um, everyone wants to be trendy nowadays. Uh, there's an increasing tenacity in the East to become like the West. So there's a lot of debate about we're being Westernized and uh, what's fast culture. Um, and it's not technically bad to be westernized, uh, but at the same time, we are taking in these uh, these values of, okay, we need to be a bit more trendy. We need to adapt into these uh, ways of buying new clothes and buying new food. It's the same for meat consumption. The rise in meat consumption particularly relates to an increase in income or purchasing power that we see. So from the consumer's point of view, they have disposable income more than what they had a few years back. And it's increasing and increasing over time. And they have to spend it somewhere. And uh, fast fashion is one of the things they want to spend it because everyone wants to look good. And also with, uh, with uh, I think a lot of people nowadays associate the identity with the clothes they wear. Um, so that's another reason why people like to be trendy and wear uh, clothes, different clothes all days and, and things like that. So taking the basic laws of economics into account, um, low prices actually creates higher demand and also gives higher utility, higher satisfaction. So are these the only factors majorly affecting all of this? Uh, what's happening in the fast fashion industry or are there other aspects behind it? No, I think the pricing signal is probably the strongest incentive for people to buy um, in the market because if you're just talking in terms of purchasing power, I mean, your, your biases could be exploited. You might see a very fancy, I don't know, Massimo or Gucci on the, on the store as you walk by. However, if the prices are not feasible, if you think that this is not something I can afford of my pocket, then probably you wouldn't be able to buy it. So, of course, your, your biases are being exploited. That's the behavioral side of things. But more than that, I think it's become economically feasible for people to buy it. So that incentive, I think, is the biggest uh, problem 
when it comes to how to avoid these kinds of growing trends. And having said that, um, I think the industry, so you quoted a couple of figures. Um, I'm, I'm not going to talk much about the figures because, again, these are very debatable figures um, when it comes to how much is being produced and how much it affects. But I think there is a consensus that about 10% of the carbon emissions globally um, comes from the the apparel industry in the world. Particularly, this relates to the linear economy that we that we follow. So um, it's kind of take, make, use and throw, right? Um, so we take something from the environment, some of the resources, we make something out of it, we use it and, and then we just throw it away. There is increasingly this idea of a circular economy model where you can recycle all the clothing. And um, I'm not sure about the Indian market, particularly. I'm, I'm not aware of these companies. But a few months back, I was um, in a sustainable fashion competition that was being organized by the Harvard and the MIT. And uh, we actually saw that students were speaking a lot about these circular economy companies that actually then take clothes and they have their tailors who then sort of, I don't know how they do it, but they probably cut apart different apparels together and stitch them together to make a new one. So if we can gravitate towards that sort of a world, I don't think buying more essentially, I mean, of course, you should never buy more than you need, uh, but we can sort of damage control to a huge extent uh, of what we are currently in, because currently we just tend to throw it away. So brands like H&M and Zara in India as well are moving on towards sustainability they started this process where they do take clothes from consumers and recycle them into quilts and blankets. But then again, we don't know how much of this percentage actually works in the favor of sustainability because there is no data behind it and there is no transparency. So ultimately, that is something that only becomes about the brand image. It's not really creating some substantial effect, but only adding up to the brand's name. Um, in fact, there are some practices being taken up by individuals, like as you mentioned, upscaling. That is something not only organizations and brands are doing, but also individuals are doing it by themselves. They are making more of their old clothes. They are trying to uh, rewarm the clothes and adding new stuff, cutting stuff out just to make a new product out of their old clothes. Um, along with that, thrifting is another set come up in the last few months and years, where basically you sell your clothes to make more use of out of the same product because living in the era we do today when no one's gonna wear a cloth multiple times we did a survey where out of our 50 respondents 42 of them did not wear a single piece of cloth more than 10 times that's about 85 percent of them so with everyone wearing clothes only limited number of times it actually helps to thrift the clothes that is sell the clothes so that that same piece of cloth can actually give more utility um, adding to that, there is only limited with these practices like upscaling and thrifting. These are being taken up by individuals, but only a limited degree of things can be done by individuals. And with these brands pushing such massive amounts of clothes, with these massive, massive push from the brands to the stores and via e-commerce, what change can we bring about? Yeah, I think a lot of companies nowadays are trying to become more sustainable. Um, of course, there is an incentive problem when you talk about Zara and H&M and all these brands. I think there's a big talk amongst uh, young, trendy people that they kind of, um, they don't like these companies because of the labor conditions, uh, which is a separate issue, but also because of the way they extract these uh, products from the environment. To be honest, Sheen and Boohoo, I think it's called Boohoo, um, they're really opaque, as you said, in all these numbers and behind all their operations. And 
We don't know why, but this is something that we've seen before. I think companies often keep their secrets of trade. Uh, sometimes they don't want to issue it. Uh, but a general consensus coming from the citizens might be a very strong indication that they want to be, they want to change their practices, let's say. I think we are seeing a rise in young conscious environmentalism from the, the adults in the country um, globally, uh, and which is probably causing them to change their their uh, practices to an extent. However, incentives are what's important here again. So for instance, a few days back, um, I saw this trouser, which is the, the, the advertiser is completely sustainable. You, it's uh, completely made from organic products. And then uh, once you've worn it, you can also plant it under the ground and a plant will grow out of it and stuff like that. And it's a 24-7 trouser. So you can wear it for office, you can wear it for parties, you can, it's customizable to every kind of occasion you have. The cost of that trouser was almost about 150 quid, um, which would translate to about 15,000 Indian currency. Now, a lot of people would want to buy that. But then again, is it affordable to buy something like that when you can go to I don't know what are the brands, uh, Big Bazaar or uh, Pantaloons in India, and then you get something for uh, 500 bucks, right? So incentive will play a big role uh, now and going forwards in how sustainability would be taken up uh, and be driven. Some of the things that we could use um, would be counteractive nudges, because most of the ways in which fast fashion sort of drives itself is through these nudges, which are not being used for the best purposes that they're being designed for. So you will see all these issues of sales. We have autumn sale and we have spring sale is just a new way of uh, changing the stock and bringing something in to show that, okay, your clothes might be determined by the, the season or the trend. Like they often put out, oh, sale, and then we have new stock coming in. It's just a way of making people think into uh, buying new clothes. So there are issues with the way how these people kind of do things around us, uh, rearranging all the stores, um, anchoring you to certain, certain forms of biases. So for instance, if a trench coat starts selling for a certain price in some part of the world, then other countries and other companies will also start hedging their trench coats at that price. So they have some some sort of anchoring bias as well that they're going on and furthermore exploiting the trend you see something on tiktok or something on all these social media they're very active these these big firms they're sitting out there and they actually have big behavioral units in the firms who work constantly they kind of producted under the name of the department marketing but digital marketing is a big part of their marketing and all they do is personally target you through all these big data crunching on what are the links you're using and what are the links you're clicking so you open facebook and you scroll through a couple of things and the next thing you see is an ad which is completely personalized and targeted towards you telling you to buy this new lehenga or uh, this, this new shirt so i think humans could be educated into avoiding these kind of nudges. So if there are nudges, which kind of are inevitable, uh, they'll always be, if uh, all these environmental organizations can come up with counteractive nudges to sort of counter the subliminal targeting and, and advertisements and all these kinds of things, that would be a good and easy way to start. Because at the end of the day, incentives are something which are beyond our control. Unless the market finds a cheap way of coming out with a sustainable product, you can't really buy something that's sustainable. 
Okay, so so why do you think that the governments and organizations aren't making use of such nudges to push consumers to switch to more sustainable products? The way these brands are pushing us to consume their products, can't organizations and governments do the same to push us to more sustainable products? Yeah, I mean, th- this is something which is a bit tricky because uh, political lobbying. is is a big part for all these industries and i think it's fair to say that all kind of political organizations you need money in the economy to make the money run right so you can't just ban everything and you can't just enforce rules straight away i think on a sort of supranational level there are different kinds of laws which national governments are trying to follow so for instance the paris agreement and all its goals the nationally determined contributions to the paris agreement are quite different for different countries but for instance in the uk we are quite strong in going for the net zero target so we are thinking of neutralizing all emissions by 2030 If you have a government that is that focused then there are different ways to bring in these kind of norms for citizens. So one thing you could do for instance is make it mandatory in the corporate social responsibility of the company to offset these emissions. So it's fine if if you use products that are carbon intensive as long as you're offsetting it in some other part of the world. Carbon offsets is a big thing that is being used by flights for instance. Nowadays you can offset your emissions when you're flying from one point of the world to the other. So offsets could be used um there there could be other things which could be brought in so for instance personalized carbon budgets started being a concept a few years back died out quickly because again it's very intensive for humans to use it but something on those lines like calorie labels i don't know if you guys have seen so when you buy food um sometimes they use different kinds of labeling schemes green amber and red to show how carbon intensive the food is or even how healthy the food is red would mean oh don't eat it it's full of msg or salt or i don't know whatever nonsense they put in there they could use similar kinds of indicators labeling schemes for when you're buying food so normally nowadays when you walk into a store your idea of sustainability is driven by the brand image as you said sanika um it's not necessary that the brand in itself is always non sustainable the brand could produce a range of products and these range of products could have different uh, sustainability impacts uh, on the environment right so if you start differentiating these products by not just prices but also labels indicating the carbon footprint that went into producing the good maybe that then people would have some sort of change in how they buy it now to give you an example there would be something which could be predicted is called the compromise effect we've seen this quite a number of times so at some point i think coca cola or um starbucks they were trying to do something where they're trying to reduce the uh, sugar intake and the coffee intake so what they did was they introduced a smaller cup size and what that forced people to do were they didn't want to buy something that small as the small or something as large as the large so they went for the the medium size cups and that has become a trend now you walk into a coffee shop most people tend to buy the medium size cups this kind of effect has been also seen in others so for meat consumption when you tell people to reduce meat they often reduce from red meat but don't turn vegetarian they settle for chicken or something which is white or fish so if you use labels i think one of the things you might see which can be predicted is that people would go for something which is medium intensive cutting down completely on their emissions and the worst thing that could happen out of that is uh, we always think about direct effects there could be spillovers so if today i walk into a store and i buy something that is completely green would then that entitle me to engage into some sort of frivolous consumption afterwards some sort of warm glow so i think it's not as easy a solution as we are thinking but to begin with i think 
there are lots of counteracting ways through the incentives that can be used, not by the government, but by the organizations themselves um, to sort of counteract these trends. I think we as consumers also face a paradox of choice when it comes to shopping nowadays. You may enter a store with the thought of only buying one article of clothing, but you're so bombarded with choices that we end up buying more frivolously than what we wanted to. So I guess that's a personal issue that we as consumers also need to work on. That's a nudge, right? Because um, if you read Taylor and Sunstein's nudge, they start out with putting the chocolate at the eye level or the till is a nudge. Banning it is not. The entire idea is placement. Uh, Why do you think they spend so much money on making things look so snazzy? Um, It's a way of inducing it to buy things. I have always been the target of this. Every time I walk into a store and I put something on, I I feel like I'm... um, I look like a Bollywood hero. I come back, put that shirt on. It exactly doesn't look the way it looked on me in a store. It's all visual effects. The, the, the mirrors, the cameras, lighting, everything is designed in a way to co-opt your, your sort of your thinking there into making you think, oh, this is the perfect item for you. You come back, it's not. So I think consciousness is something that can be used in consumerism to make people aware of their impacts, but it is very costly. It is a gradual thing. Uh, it would need some education and it would need some working, but there are other sort of behavioral interventions that can be used. So uh, Boosts, for instance, has been doing rounds uh, for the last few years, since 2016. Um, Boosts help in sort of fostering people competencies to make the right decision. So we, with nudges, what you do is that you keep the choice architecture the way it is, and you make some small changes to that. And these changes in the choice architecture would exploit your biases to kind of come up to a reasoning. With Boost, you agree that people are always going to rely on shortcuts and you just give them better shortcuts. So for instance, if you start telling people that follow a quick rule, a simple rule that you're only going to buy a new set of clothing when the old one is torn, out or when the old one is, I don't know, almost disposable. Um, at that point, maybe then people start following that rule and just buying things when they need to buy, right? You could use something like an implementation intention, which is like an if-then plan, pretty much similar to what I said, but you you tie every action to a certain scenario. So if I have a wedding, then I buy a wedding dress. If I have worn a wedding dress for five times, then I buy a new wedding dress. So you can actually sequence a lot of these in and then people you can tell people just follow this rule and you should be fine wherever you go. So I think there is a lot of work that's happening on that front. But again, it's down to the the government and the organizations and practice. this we come to the end of episode 4 consumer behavior and psychology behind fast fashion side a stay tuned for side b